This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. For over 15 years, the Cersei Apprenticeship has been equipping teachers to understand the nature and principles of classical education and showing how those principles can be brought back to any classroom or homeschool. The Cersei Institute's Apprenticeship Program is an in-depth, personal teacher development community. With mentorship and community at its core, it's a program for teachers from all walks of life who want to drink deeply from the wisdom of the ages, engage in inspiring conversation with like-minded friends, and push hard towards truth, wisdom, and virtue. The mentor-apprentice relationship and the community that springs out of it is the very heart of the program. Each of the seven groups is kept small so that mentors and apprentices can truly know each other. The mentors guide the apprentices by providing assessment that blesses, accountability that strengthens, and regular discussions that nurture. The environment is welcome and safe. The community develops over shared meals and stories. The pedagogy is founded on Christian classical education forms. And the assessment is for the apprentice to flourish. These are the things that set this teacher training program apart. Do you have questions about how this apprenticeship works? Our head mentors are here to help. Each week this spring, one of them will be available online via Zoom to answer your questions about the program. So whether you have questions about the curriculum, the retreat experience, or the purpose of the program, the Cersei team is here to clarify. Visit searcyinstitute.org slash apprenticeship to check this week's date and time. You're listening to the Cersei Podcast Network. I'm Joshua Gibbs, and this is Proverbial, the podcast where we explore the wisdom of the ages as it comes to us in Proverbs, by which I mean wise sayings a man may live by if he's not so arrogant as to think himself special. Episode 57, Fortunes on a String. Today's proverb comes from Solomon. I'll read it twice. Cast thy bread upon the waters, for thou shalt find it after many days. 
once more. Cast thy bread upon the waters, for thou shalt find it after many days. It's a beautiful spring afternoon right now. I live on the campus of my school, and you might, over the course of this episode, hear children happily yelling and screaming and playing in the background. The wall of my bedroom goes out onto the quad of the school. So it's difficult to find a place to record the show and a time to record it. Cast thy bread upon the waters, for thou shalt find it after many days. This is a proverb, but barely. It's really more of an oracle. It's the sort of thing that the Pythia at Delphi would say. And if you've ever looked over a list of sayings of the Pythia, which are extant, you know that Apollo was fond of vague, self-contradictory, paradoxical sorts of sayings like this one. At the same time, really, all of scripture is oracular. It's all oracles of God. There are just some passages that make that fact more clear than others. Cast thy bread upon the waters, for thou shalt find it after many days. I say this is an oracle, maybe a bit more than it is a proverb, though I want to treat it that way. Because it has almost no face value. Most proverbs can be read on multiple levels, but most proverbs have a face value. Like one of my favorites, the cobbler's children have no shoes. That's true at face value. It's a statement that describes this certain way in which parenting tends to fall apart. But it's true of cobblers. Even though you don't know any cobblers, it's true of cobblers, that the cobblers' children are probably more poorly shod than the customers who go to see the cobbler. Or a saying of Christ, like, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. That has value on the surface. At first blush, that has value. It makes sense to a child. It requires an adult to unpack the cobbler's children have no shoes. But you could explain the meaning of that to a child, and they could come to understand it. But cast thy bread upon the waters, for thou shalt find it after many days, doesn't have a a face value. By which I mean, if you take a loaf of Pepperidge Farm rye to the ocean and throw it in one slice at a time, you have taken leave of your senses. You have not even begun to fulfill this command of Solomon. So what is, first of all, what is the bread? Cast thy bread upon the waters. Bread is the food of humanity. Bread is so human. Bread is so omnipresent. It's become an icon of 
every food there is. Bread is food about food. Angels have no bodies, and yet wisdom is often called the bread of angels. When God sends food, he usually sends bread. He sends bread to Elijah in the beaks of ravens. He sends bread to the Israelites, like dew. The only thing that Christ ever chides his apostles for not having, on hand at least, is bread. According to Assyrian tradition, bread was the first sacrifice Adam offered to God after his exile from the Garden of Eden. He was emotionally incapable of slaughtering an animal, and so Gabriel taught the first man how to offer a bloodless sacrifice of bread. Wisdom is not only the bread of angels, then. The wisdom of angels is bread. The theological significance of bread as life and salvation is no stretched metaphor. At a table that is filled with meats and cheeses and savories and lush fruit, children are honest enough to reach for bread first. Children will reach over, beyond meat and cheese that cost $50, $60, $70 a pound for bread that's worth about 50 cents a pound. First, you rarely have to coax a child to eat bread. Bread is the intuitive, natural food of mankind. Other foods might be more costly and rare and festive, but we harbor suspicions that they're all just lavishly dressed slaves of king bread. Even fine restaurants serve bread as an appetizer, as though you need to be reminded of what food is before the other food is served. What else is bread? Bread is a metaphor for money. The person who funds the family table is not the banana winner, but the breadwinner. Bread is a sign of both luxury and poverty. The destitute are served nothing but, quote, bread and water. And yet, in sources as diverse as, ooh, the account of Ezekiel's life and Shakespeare's Hamlet, a fullness of bread, quote-unquote, is a fat and decadent spirit. When Satan comes to tempt Christ, what does he tempt him with? Bread is a food of such importance, of such moment, that Christ exonerates David's theft of bread from the temple. We often remember that Esau sold his birthright for a pot of red stew, but we don't often remember that Jacob sweetens the deal with bread. Bread is a great blessing. It's also a great terror. In the book of Judges, there's a Midianite who dreams that a round loaf of bread rolls into their camp and flattens it. And his friends immediately declare the bread to be the sword of the righteous Israelite Gideon. During the Middle Ages, a man accused of murder might undergo a trial by ordeal where he had to eat a piece of bread blessed by a, by a priest. And if he was guilty, the bread itself would become the reaper 
and he would choke to death on holy food. Bread is the only food that people will riot over. Long before Marx, long before communism, Christians demanded the government fix a reasonable price for bread. So there are bread riots. There are no cheese riots. Bread is the staple food of man, which has been elevated to a high form of art as well. There's only four ingredients in bread. And yet an eight-week class in making bread at Les Arts de la Boulangerie will cost you $10,000. There are some scientists who have suggested that humans and yeast, human DNA and yeast DNA, are similar. And that the bread and wine of the Eucharist are curiously close to flesh, whether you believe in the real presence of Christ or not. So what is it that we cast on the water when we cast our bread on the water? It's our whole lives. It's our being. Throw your whole life on the water. What's the water, though? Or the waters? In Scripture, water is chaos, or the waters are chaos. The waters are the Gentile nations. In the monologues of Yahweh to Job, the waters are a kind of madness upon which God has set unpassable bounds. And this is one of the great works of God in creation, is fixing the boundaries of the waters so that they can't go too far. The waters are judgment when they rise up against all mankind in the flood. To keep the water at bay is to create safe passage for the Israelites. So the waters are the unknown, the dangerous, the terrifying aspects of life on earth. And Solomon says, you've got to throw your life into the chaos. I want to note that he doesn't say, and this might seem nitpicky, he doesn't say, throw all your bread on the waters. Because there's plenty of other instruction about what we need to do with our bread. We need to eat it. We need to give it away. We need to give our bread to the poor. We need to set apart portions of our abundance for those who have nothing. We need to use our bread to make friends. This is the teaching of Christ. Use unrighteous mammon to make friends for yourself so that when your mammon fails you, you'll be accepted into an eternal home. So we have 
many different responsibilities with our bread, with our substance, with our life, with our money. And we're not throwing it all into the water. We're not loosing our entire lives into the chaos, but we have to give something over to the unknown. You have to reserve some part of your life for this unaccountable mystery of God's will at work in the world. So God has agreed to meet with us through certain predictable avenues. God has agreed to meet with us in holy things. We can meet with God in his holy book, the Bible, on his holy days, Sunday, Christmas, Easter, Annunciation. We meet with him in holy places, the nave of a church, Damascus, Jerusalem. We meet with him in holy men, priests, pastors, the elderly who have lived well. So there's all of these predictable avenues, these reliable avenues that God has given us to meet with him. And there's no mystery about where God will meet with us. That there is still to this day an angel that descends to stir up the waters of the pool and that the rules are well known and that the first person into the pool is healed. There are rules to holiness, but God does whatever he wants to do. So God has vouched to meet with us in these predictable, reliable, dependable sorts of ways. But he is by no means bound to these as though he cannot operate outside of them. And so there's plenty of the bread of human existence. There's a lot of the bread of human existence that has to be devoted to these sorts of reliable institutions. We have to give ourselves over to the holy things whereby God meets with us regularly. We must read the scriptures. We must go to church. We must receive the sacraments. But we've also got to reserve some part of our life for the wildness of God that cannot be contained by predictable holy things. Because Old and New Testament alike prove over and over and over again that God will show up wherever he pleases. God will show up in the shadows of the apostles. In the absence of the apostles, God makes his presence known. Divine power is transported by way of bones and handkerchiefs. That's just the New Testament. He will suddenly show up in the mouth of an animal that can suddenly speak. He'll show up in a desert, in an illumined bush. And to this day, God makes himself available to us. 
But if we're willing to cast our bread on the waters, we have to be willing to admit that God can show up in weird ways and that he's not limited by these things. Cast your bread upon the waters, for thou shalt find it after many days. And obviously, when you find it after many days, it's not the same as it was before. So what Solomon commends is this generous approach to the world. Don't be so wise that you kill yourself while you're still young. That's another one of Solomon's teachings. So don't account for every penny, every moment, every day, every week, every year of your life. You've got to reserve some for the fact that you're not in control. That a plan is worth quite a bit, but even plans have limitations. Also, there's no telling who you know today that will undergo a profound change of fortune over the next 20 years. There's no telling who you're spending your life with in their youth who will grow up to be some sort of powerful person, righteous person, great artist, great philanthropist. And if you have to have complete and total control over all of your money, all of your time, all of your moments, and you're never willing to lavish yourself on someone or something that doesn't deserve it, you are closing yourself off to all those avenues where God is trying to break into your life in a sort of unexpected, unpredictable sort of way. Now, and I think that that sort of reading of the of the oracle is justifiable, maybe because cast thy bread upon the waters wants to, or I sort of intuitively take the waters to mean the ocean, but we could also think of the waters as a river. Cast your bread on the rivers. You never know who's going to be a beneficiary of your generosity. You never know when the people who live downstream are going to march back to you and say, you saved us so many years ago when you lavished this unpredictable gift on us. You couldn't have possibly known what you were doing at the time. What man meant randomly, God meant intentionally. And I say this, of course, as a teacher, as someone who deals with human beings that are on the cusp of adulthood on the cusp of greatness, on the cusp of self-possession, self-government, self-direction, and may make great names for themselves. And so Solomon says, don't forget that you can't say for sure what's going to happen to all your students in the future. Why not be as generous as possible so that you have something to look forward to after many days when one of them becomes great? Why not spend yourself? Why not lavish your own person and your time and your wisdom and your ability on these on these young men, young women, so that when they're grown men and grown women, they have a reason to find you. They have a reason to come back to you. 
Don't you want to be the sort of person that people want to look up after many years? Don't you want to become the kind of person who's so generous, who's so lenient, that people will return to you of their own will? deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.